0: Welcome to the Deal with the Old podcast, your series covering issues that matter most uh, in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfer, Director of Digital Transformations at Winfield United. And I'm John Zook, agronomist at Winfield United. Thanks for joining us for the live episode of The Deal with Yield. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Uh, We release episodes every Friday covering topics ranging from emerging egg technology, micronutrient myth busting, which that's always a fun one, uh, and, and tissue testing, which is what we'll be covering today. So John, this year, Winfield United, we we got about 45,000 tissue samples in and we've analyzed those nationally. Uh, this is kind of the big reveal for this. Talk to me about tissue testing and the value it brings to farmers.
1: So Joel, before we get into all the conversation around tissue testing and, and what we have to talk about, we got to turn this into a competition. <laughs> and it, and it, I mean, what it boils down to me in looking at the data is, it's all geographically based, right? But I ask the question, of course, I mean, coming from Minnesota, we want to make sure that we're well represented, but which state took the most tissues test? So give me a guess, uh, out of
0: 45,000, which state
1: on corn took the 000. most tissue test?
0: You know, I don't know, it was, it was chaotic this season. It was wet in a lot of places. You know, Indiana had Prevent Plant, North Dakota had Prevent Plant. Sounds like you're yeah. making excuses. I don't know. Nebraska was underwater the first half of the year. How about Iowa? Did Iowa win it? Uh, Iowa is in the podium. Okay. Yep. Um, Illinois was wet. Well, I'm going to go Wisconsin, my home state. Did we do anything good in the world?
1: Uh, well, like the Packers and the rest of your team, um, you're in the ranking. So you're on the podium too. But, you know, nah, no, nah, you didn't make the first place. Oh, all right. Well, tell me who won. Uh, so Minnesota did. Oh, hey. right. So Minnesota 44 or 4600 plus tissues test, uh Iowa and Wisconsin to follow. So when we look at the trends within them on corn um, between those three states probably rive up to close to 15,000 tissue tests on corn um between those three states.
0: So The winner's great, but, you know, more data gives us more points to analyze. What were some of the trends inside of the winning state?
1: So, when I look at uh, the winning state, and and I mean, more of a competition, but when I look at, say, combining Iowa and Minnesota, very close in geography, um, looking at some of the deficiencies, key deficiencies, is the most efficient nutrient across all those tissue sample was zinc. And we're talking like 82 plus percent of the time between both of those states. Mm-hmm. Um, keep in mind that both of our tissue or a lot of our tissue tests are taken in the early vegetation stages, so we would expect zinc to be deficient in those. The interesting part, though, is when I look at Wisconsin, um, Wisconsin. Zinc doesn't even show up until probably the bottom side of the the deficiencies, whereas some of the other nutrients are more deficient in Wisconsin than they are in in Iowa and Minnesota. So it really goes to show the value of having a super large data set like that 45,000 number. It's a great number, but the number doesn't mean anything if you don't have the local data in the area to represent it. So I think that's where we see some that's where we can pick out and see some of the trends to make adjustments in season and actually make a good recommendation for that acre.
0: You know, I think. The- this year, you know, looking back, you know, we tried to break this down in season on the county averages and get growers uh, through their retailers really timely information to say, you know, here's some of the trends at the county level last year. Uh, but, you know, really it comes down to, if you wanna know something about your farm, you've gotta take the sample, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So taking the taking the sample, a lot of times, I mean, going back to some of the basics
1: of tissue sampling, especially in corn, really we wanna target, like I said, that early vegetation time, time frame. Particularly because a lot of times we forget at V five corn this tall, remember Joel? Mm-hmm. I know you've it's been a long time since you've maybe walked a cornfield, right? Right. Mostly almonds and tomatoes nowadays, huh? Yeah. Right. Okay. No, but so when you're at that V five corn, uh, we forget that its initiated tassel ears are developed and triggered, and that's when nutrients matter the most. So a lot of times you go, well, you target that time frame because we can still drive across the acre, right? but we target that time frame because yield is being made at that time frame So about knee high to head high is when the bulk of your ear is being developed, and that's a very particular time for both the macronutrients as well as micronutrients. So uh, that's why we're targeting those timeframes early.
0: Yeah. So you know, I think it's it's uh, we're all joining live today, and so you know, you may be joining live from the combine. You know, one of my uh, mentors as an agronomist, you know, a guy named Bob Shopper, he would always talk about you know the corn plant is a great historian that being able to dissect a corn plant, and if you and I were out in the field today, I'm sure we'd be standing here with a stock half split open, but you know, a little bit, as you look at this nutrient analysis that we've got, and we've got these samples back, coming live from the combine, how do we look how do we use uh, the corn plant as a historian and look back at where some of those n- nutrient deficiencies might have been in our plant in our field?
1: Mm-hmm. So, so the nutrient deficiencies. I think it it goes. You can you can look at all parts of the corn plant, but the first thing I'm going to look at is is maybe uh, nutrient deficiency can be described of how efficient that plant was growing. Um, so think about the root growth, mm-hmm. and if you get established. Uh, a uh, standard emergence, so equal emergence across the field, typically you get consistent root growth and consistent root growth a lot of times leads to even ear height. So the first thing that I'm really gonna look at is when I'm in the combine and driving, are my ears about at the same height? Or do I see them staggered from maybe two nodes higher, one node low, go up over the hilltop, right? And you gotta lower the the head a little bit because the, the, the ears are so close to the ground. And then you get down in the low and, and they come back up again. So that's the unevenness in ear height. And not all the time does that represent a tissue or a, a nutrient deficiency. It's more of an emergence, but the one nutrient that can affect emergence is zinc right? So zinc is very uh, important for early season vigor. And we have a a plethora of data describing why we need to put zinc on the seed and in furrow to get that crop up and onto the ground and actively growing and being consistent uniform stand all the way around.
0: So zinc is an important piece for emergency. And and, you're going to see uniformity in stock diameter, uniformity of of emergence going to be a, a big part in there. But as you look at that ear height in particular, I always think corn plant Uh, The corn plant is a bit of a gambler, playing roulette, figuring out uh, where to place its bet and determining that ear height. It could determine to set the ear height. You know, it's got an ear that it could put on at every node in there. Uh, Talk to me about, you know, nitrogen's role in determining which node and which node do you typically see uh, corn plants set that ear height at?
1: So uh, nitrogen plays a a big role in determining uh, that ear size and capacity and which node it's going to set at? Because um, I don't know if this is uh, um, for lack because I have I don't have any room on the desk to Google and look at the computer. Yep. Um, when does nitrogen actually make help the plant make the decision? It's probably somewhere between that fifty to eighty percent of the overall nitrogen uptake, which guess what occurs at V fifteen ish yep. right before tassel, and so there we get ear set. Okay, so once we get ear set, now all of that becomes our sink. Okay, before we had ear set, the whole plant, all the vegetation was our plant. So everything that plant was doing photosynthetically and bringing nutrients up from the roots was going to feed the vegetation. Once we get that ear set, now we have a new sink. So now everything that plant is doing is not feeding vegetation anymore. It's going right into that ear. Um, so, once that plant decides where that ear is going to be, that's going to be where nitrogen is going to have the biggest effect. Typically, I'm seeing ears being firm, formed on nodes, uh, and this is vague, 10 through 14. Mm-hmm. So, if you're going to stage the plant, cut it open, and you looked at where those leaf collars were, you'd like to see nodes 10 through 14. Now, I don't know if I'd say, hey, you're better if you have the ear on node 14 versus node 10. I would go back to if I'd rather just have it all on node 10, right? That means it was consistent versus, hey, I have one on node 10 and one on 14 and, and it's up. That would be variable. Um, maybe you have some stand gaps, maybe you some uneven emergence, that sort of thing.
0: You know, I think that's uh, that's one of the places you can really see that in the answer plots because we, we, we have those, those grass alleyways and you see two hybrids side by side with the same amount of nitrogen, maybe a, a stressful amount of nitrogen, a limited amount. And the high response nitrogen hybrid May have that variability of ear set versus the low response to nitrogen will actually set pretty uniformly. Mm-hmm. So, so even you know inter inter hybrid variants uh, will will play a role in in how uniform that is.
1: The other thing that you can look uh, and this maybe you might not be able to have the knack in the combine to see it, um, just because a lot of the husks are still in the ears. But when you get off and. Yeah, miss some ears and they're on the ground, right, or maybe you turn the corner a little too sharp. I know you're guilty of doing that. I've we, heard we, of that before. Right? Yeah. We
0: chop our, all ours for silage. Oh, got it. Yeah. Got it.
1: So, we can drive any direction in our field. Doesn't matter, crossways and homeworks. Right. Okay. So, when you find that ear that's laying on the ground, grab it, pick it up, and another way that you can look at how you did fertility-wise and relate them back to your tissue samples is, uh, we call it the zipper, right, and a lot of mm-hmm. growers are familiar with the zipper, but uh, there's different kinds of zipper. What I'm seeing out there this year, um, and I've been through all the answer plots so far uh, in the Minnesota area, is I'm actually seeing uh, the the nitrogen zipper or the fertility zipper, mm. meaning the root growth just wasn't there. Or maybe the root growth was there, but the soils were just so wet, as they were across a lot of the Midwest, that we didn't get that nutrient uptake. And what you'll see is typically on the bottom side of the ear, so the ear is going to hang off the plant like this, the bottom side of the ear, you have a zipper. And that zipper is not just tip back, but it's actually, uh, it's got that zipper on the bottom side of the ear. And a lot of times this year, it's so extreme that I almost see we lose one or two rows. Mm. So uh, Joel, I was doing uh, ear counts on some of the treatments, nitrogen stabilizers versus some egg technology um, recommendations, all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, intern was helping me and you always have to laugh, right? Because if you count rows around and then kernels long, and then we take a weight and factor in the yield. He's, he was counting years and I was counting years and typing them into the computer and had our magic formula. And he said, well, this year's uh, 17 by 32. And I'm huh, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? 17, there ain't no 17. So yeah, it's 17, here you go. Well, sure enough, it was 17 because we had lost the whole row um, down because of that fertility effect. And guess what? We were in a nitrogen treatment that got applied pre and no stabilizer. So we had 150 pounds up front applied pre, no stabilizer, and it rained and rained and rained, maybe got planted two, three weeks later. And so the availability of nitrogen is. Now our next task is to go back and where on the tissue samples did we see that deficiency and why? So that might be a, a reason for why maybe yields aren't up to snuff or some ways you can identify where you, how your fertility program worked into that season.
0: So I think, you know, looking back at this growing season, uh, you know, I found that uh, with all the chaos, and I, I, I talk about the weather as chaos because it was like, hurry up and wait. You got, you know, one day of planting in and then waited 15 days. Uh, you know, you weren't sure if, you, you know, you probably had a worst day of planting. You weren't sure if that worst day, it was in April or was in June. Uh, but as corn planting got pushed further back in the U.S. this year, uh, some of the mental models that I have as an agronomist of you know what a tissue sample should look like kind of got broken because the plant metabolism you know was experiencing more heat under uh, earlier growth stages. What impact did that have as you looked at tissue samples this year? So I I feel the same way.
1: So don't feel like you're left out there. Mental models were thrown out the door this year, and I mean we're. And those mental models sometimes in the field led to cases of beer <laughs> when you had to bet on when the tassel date was going to happen. Right? Oh, yeah. It's like Jesus, it's no way this thing can tassel, and guess what? It, it. I mean, it happened in July for the most part. And there's based on our planting date. I mean, there's a lot of cases of beer being flung around because people had it wrong. Did you guess right? Uh I used a model so I cheated and I, <laughs> yeah I kind of did guess right but I was still nervous about it and mental but mental no we weren't we weren't ready to to go like, how the heck could that happen? But going back to your question on tissue samples, so the same thing kind of related. You couldn't believe that the corn plant was V5 and you got the tissue sample back and it was abnormal to what you what you had seen, right? All nutrients were deficient or in some cases, all of them were sufficient and was totally opposite of the typical trends that we'd seen in past years where we would have uh, You say what's normal now, but a somewhat normal growing season. Because of our late planting and our squeezed growth window, I think we went through a lot of the growth stages a lot quicker. So the physiology of the corn plant and and beans for that matter were significantly different. Mm.
0: So, you know, going back to the view from the cab right now, you know, maybe as you pick up one of those years, uh, you know, I I see uh, in... Uh, in Minnesota, the second uh, most deficient nutrient on here was 88.3% of the time boron was deficient, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, I know you've always talked to me about boron's important role in uh, pollen formation, mm-hmm. and then you know the pollen tube formation, and then the amount of pollen that the plant was able to put out. Uh, typically, pollination stress is you know under high heat. Uh, or a lack of maybe nutrients at that at that time frame, uh, what would I look for in the ear right now if boron was a limiting factor? So, it,
1: the interesting thing about boron and its ability to maybe gain uh, yield potentials, you're gonna look at the tip of the ear, but here's the way that really shakes out, is uh, all those things that boron has effect on with pollen and tasseling really just make sure that all of your kernels are pollinated quicker and at the same time. It's kind of like the emergence conversation that we had with zinc, Mm -hmm. right? If you can get them all the ground at the same time, you're way more consistent. Same thing with boron. If you can get them all to pollinate really quick and at the same time, you're way more consistent in holding the rest of the ear because here's the deal, the later pollinated kernels are the first ones to abort. Okay. So, if you can kind of cram that time frame, they're more likely to all be on the safe side versus if you take a long time to pollinate, those later pollinated ones will abort. And that's where you get that zipper ear and the tip back. So, in boron, a lot of the cases, if you were boron deficient prior to tassel or slightly after tassel, we would tend to see a little bit more tip back. Now the research on on that is exists. It's a realism, um, but the thing is, is a lot of times the research is done in the extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Boron full versus no boron, none. This year, because of our uh, wet conditions, boron or borate is mobile in the soil, just like nitrate. Mm-hmm. So I would say that we probably had a more opportunity to experience more boron deficiency than we had in years past just because the amount of water and moisture we had to flush that boron out. So we might be a little bit more um, related to the extremes that our research shows in our field than we have in years past. So boron deficiency is real and it's normally related to the tip because of the, the later pollinated kernels mm-hmm. are more likely to abort.
0: You know, you talk about uh, that, that kernel fill, and it, it makes me think of a string of black cats going off. When you light the fuse, you want all the kernels to fill right away. And, you know, boron's role in that is to make sure that all the black cats go off is, is mm-hmm. to fill out all the kernels. So, so zinc, uniformity of emergence, boron, uniformity of kernel fill. Mm-hmm. What, what are some other things that we can see, you know, from a nutrient analysis as, from the cap? So, I, I, the other things that we that we didn't talk about that are obvious,
1: and we're dealing with them out there currently as harvest goes on, is, is standability issues. Mm. I was just in a plot the other day, um, yesterday, in fact, and, and said, hey, what are you seeing out here? How's it going? It's like, man, these stocks are going down quick. And a lot of time that's going to relate to some of the macronutrients that we had, specifically potassium. Um, so, if you're seeing some poor stocks, I guess I'd relate that back to... A tissue test if you were seeing deficiency in potassium, but then more importantly, how do you relate that tissue test to a soil sample? Where's that fertility at? Because we know that the plant has to actively engage the soil to extract potassium out of it, and that's a relationship that a tissue test helps us identify in season. So
0: potassium would probably be the relationship to stocks. So if your corn reel is running and you're you're raking the combine into your head, you're probably not having a very good day right now. But as
1: long as you're not using pitchforks, right? I mean, you yeah. you got a corn reel. That's one. That's one
0: advantage. You're one step closer. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that that uh, it, you know certainly there's hybrid sensitivity around standability and and some have more standability, but you know some of the difference makers are you know the the soil's ability to give up that potassium and then the, the plant's ability to utilize that in uh, in stability. Potassium is one of the uh, is one of the interesting pieces in the plant. It's not uh, it's not organically held in the plant. So what's what's always interesting to me is that potassium that's in that plant is really just used uh almost like uh you know you see cranes erected alongside of buildings Mm -hmm. and then once the building is built they take the crane down and that's kind of like the way the potassium works as soon as the corn plant is built you know and you know the cells are are, you know uh dead uh now all of a sudden potassium can leach out of those cells pretty rapidly
1: Mm -hmm. so and you say leach because out of the plant it can leach potassium's mobile in the plant right i mean it's it's interesting to think that we work so hard to build the soil fertility up in K levels. The plant has to have a huge root mass to extract that potassium. But once it gets into the plant, boom, it can travel up and down. And if it rains, it goes right back into where where it gets fixes fixed in the soil again. So yeah, potassium is really unique, and 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 because of its mobility, it tags onto other nutrients and makes them mobile as well. So potassium a lot of time truly references the crane is it's just basically moving those other nutrients to different parts of the plant. And that's why it's so important with stocks is packing those nutrients in the cells so those stocks can stay nutrient packed until we get our harvest done.
0: Yeah, which I I think is is for for the producers out there that are going to be harvesting stocks, there's always this variable of you know maybe a neighbor wants to bail it up for you and and what the value of that is and it's always a bit of a moving target yep. because you know how much rainfall you got and how much of that you know potassium that's not organically held in the plant can actually move back uh, and and be on that soil surface and it's 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 immobile in the soil but mobile in the plant mm-hmm. so I I think that that potassium uh, fraction of of what you're taking off there's not tons taken off in the grain uh, but it, it's one of the things to watch. If you harvest dry stocks, you're probably taking a lot of potassium with you. And for that matter, going back to our
1: corn silage conversation, if you're if you're taking off corn silage too, remember you're removing all plant material. you taking off a lot of potassium there, Joel. So make sure that you're putting fertilizer back.
0: You know, and I thought that I was uh, exempt from cab corn when I got into the silage shopping business this fall. <laughs> it turns out I can still put cab corn on. It's just that the, the the truck driver that I was putting the silage into, he had his window open when I uh, might have given him some cab corn.
1: Oh, so you like? So do you like the truck driver still? Does he still get along with you? Uh, he didn't talk to me much after oh, that. But me. I look
0: like my brother, so I kind of played it off like it was his fault.
1: Yeah, wasn't in the comma, I don't know what you, or wasn't in the chopper. Don't know what you're talking it was about. Definitely Matt. <laughs> uh, so, to get a little bit, I mean, so we talked about specific nutrients, right? You know, zinc, boron. Uh, potassium. I mean, we can talk about a genre of others and why they matter, but I think we get in these tissue samples, and how do we? I mean, there's more clom- complex than that. It's not just single nutrients. We know, and because of the uh, amount of tissue samples that we've been taking, there's relationships and complexities within those tissue samples that we need to identify that can help us. Uh, Make better decisions in season. I mean, one of them, and we talk about advanced recommendations via tissue samples. I mean, one of them would be the N to K relationship, mm-hmm. and or the N to S relationship, and I think recognizing uh, of those uh, mental, uh, those mental conversations of those models that we put together and having those broken. You might not be able to say, hey, this one nutrient is deficient, but because those mental models are broken, now you might be able to say, well, I see a ratio was off so let's dig a little bit deeper into this nutrient deficiency and is it really truly potassium or could i just leached out a lot of nitrogen and i'm showing a potassium deficiency mm-hmm. or opposite right i put too much nitrogen on because i was worried about it and now i'm showing a potassium deficiency so i think that's where uh, in 2019 using those tissue samples to dive in deeper with the ratios, is going to be an advantage there that you could have, that you could have brought into the operation.
0: Now you know you talk about those ratios, and I, I think about uh, you know the the variance from field to field and samples. Uh, one of the tools that you've been using in the answer plot is the field forecasting tool, yep. and uh, as as far as modeling goes, you know you take variables of what happened, you know, when the field was planted, when the field was harvested last year, what the yields were last year, uh, and then what the application dates of nutrients were. And then you try to model that forward on a, on a seven-month forecast uh, to see what the yield potential is, and then you determine yield, okay? So I made it sound super simple there. Uh, but uh, what were some of your experiences as you looked at using that crop model and uh, calibrating to the tissue sample this year?
1: Yeah, so a few things uh still have a lot to corn to harvest so i uh, the end game for whatever reason everybody wants to say did my model predict the exact bushels that i harvested right why is that really the goal of the end game now, well people like to y- like yield to know, is an easy the, thing to like measure to know the model worked right yeah. that's our measure to know the model worked um so what i can add to that is i mean i have a few fields that i've entered in uh true yield data for because they've been harvested and one one of those few um, was spot on within two bushels, and my validation for why it was spot on is because it was planted somewhat normally. Right, mm-hmm. we had really good data around the hybrid. Um, I went out a uh, field was close to my house. Went out, I was able to stage it and recalibrate the model. Take a few tissue samples, make sure those were in to recalibrate the model, and in the end. Field went two hundred and six bushel, and mm-hmm. the model says it's going to be two hundred and four. I was perfectly satisfied with that. Pretty close. Okay, so that was a good field. Okay, so some of the fields that I might be seeing some some issues with where we weren't as close with the model, uh, weren't as hands on. So maybe a little bit farther away from my house. Maybe I we planted them a little later. So some of these mental things of hey, when these stages are going to come come together, um, were broken, mm-hmm. as you said, and. I staged them at V ten, but at V ten to V T happened so much differently and quick this year that we missed a maybe missed a window there and the tassel date was off and we needed to calibrate that model again to say, Hey, this isn't a normal year. And so now we're now I'm seeing maybe in those cases ten bushel off, 15 bushel off, and there's some differences there, but some discrepancies of how that year went and the conversations that we need to have. Um, so there's so there's all examples like that all over the board, but really it goes back to if you're in tune with that field and scouting it, and you're giving the model all of the information that you're able to put into it, it's going to be a pretty accurate tool to help predict yield. And for me, is it about predicting yield or is it more so helping you predict? Um, the applications that you can make in season, right? I mean, yeah. that's really what we're after. Yield in the end is when the combine rolls; that's what we get. But how do I better find tune my nitrogen? Do I need to optimize a nutrient based on a tissue test? Those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's one of the the things that we get caught in here. Is you know, we we do uh, at the end of the year, you know, we back check the model. We do some machine learning to try to calibrate this. But you know, I, I go back to the the goal of the field forecasting tool. Is to be predictive in nature. Mm-hmm. It's not to be descriptive. Now you can use it to describe what happened and when the gap between optimal uptake happened and what what you know the required uptake happened, uh, and you can use it to describe where you found gaps. But ideally speaking, it's really a prescriptive tool that on the. 5th of June when you're sitting there trying to make a decision around, you know, should I push a little harder? Should I pull back a little bit? Should I make a side dress application? You know, this is one of the best tools because it's dynamically thinking about yield as the outcome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yield isn't determined, you know, the final yield of what the corn plant can do on June 5th versus what actually happens, there's a lot of variables that go into that. I mean, the water can shut off, all those pieces. So the fact that this takes into account, uh, you know, the, the the long-term forecast as well as a five and eight-day forecast, uh, those are really important critical factors, and it's really built to prescriptively make a recommendation. So as you were running in the answer plots this year, and you know, I, I know you run a number of side by sides of everything on all at once, some on you know half and half, and then you know some you just do what the model says. Mm-hmm. What, it, what were some of the differences there as you did probably some hand checks at this point? Yeah,
1: so uh, I referenced the one uh, application where we put all the nitrogen up front, no stabilizer, and that wasn't so great, right? We lost mm. a roll around. But as we progressed, um, so I always try to progress the treatments to maybe what a grower do. This year, I called a few audibles on that study because of the season we were dealt with, and and I was getting a lot of questions of, hey, what happens if I didn't even get any nitrogen out and I got planted corn and it turned into V3, and and what's it even worth? And so uh, we were saying, well, yeah, gosh, you still got to put nitrogen on it, and, and certainly we did. Um, but what I did is I replicated that in the plots, and then I sent it to the model to see what the model would say. And actually, some of my I did uh, applications at V one, so right at emergence, and I did and I waited applications and did them at like V four, V five. Well, guess what? The V four, V five was a little late. We lost yield, but V one, um, we're still able to get emergence and put all nitrogen up front, and see that uh, see that we're still getting full yield potential. Where I was able to optimize N rate um, the most is when I put a little up front, and in this case, uh, 75 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then I'd asked the a model, hey, I'm gonna come back at V10, what do you think I should put? And that's where I was able to optimize return on investment for my nitrogen inputs on yield. So uh, what I'm saying there is I basically got the same yield with less nitrogen. Hmm. And the, my favorite part about that, and the plot that always wins Joel, is the plot where I put 300 pounds of N down up front. Always wins, right? From a yield standpoint. But if you put economics to it, it's not even close. So the thing that the tool allowed me to do in the plots this year was make uh, more informed decisions of, hey, you put some up front, uh, but how much do you need to come back? And that varied from plot to plot. I mean, in some cases, I I came back with 120 pounds. In another case, I think I had 60 pounds. Hmm. So I really used the tool to help me make that decision. But it wasn't just the tool. I got to say that I went to had an accurate uh, reading on nitrogen if I went to stage it because of where we were at, and if I went to had tissue samples that I put into that. So there's there's still some work that you had to do to feed it to get the right response. One thing that I got to add in here, and I know I've been talking a lot on this, but a really good example of how to use, so it's about nitrogen rec but one thing that we've been doing in the field with the forecasting tool, and we talked about yield and where you need to get to as a destination, one thing we're seeing in the combine this year is fungicide results and Mm. what paid off. So, I mean, if we're driving the combine and looking and you got fungicide versus an entry, you go, whoa, should have done more of that. One thing that I seen the tool used for that I thought was brilliant and I'm going to totally steal the idea was you look at the tool, and if you got um, soil samples, and you got good fertility, and you've taken a nitrogen or taken a tissue sample, and you staged it, and it says, Geez, "You got 238 bushel potential on that farm," but you have a conversation with the grower or the agronomist for that matter, and says, "Well, that farm is that's 180 bushel. Like, there's no way." But the tool says, hey, we got some potential there if we maximize the potential. The tool doesn't model disease yet. Right. Yet. Yet. Uh, But what it does do is it does make those assumptions that you're taking care of the disease and the other issues. So the conversation that you're able to have with that is say, hey, we got potential in the farm. Like, let's go ahead and make a fungicide application and keep managing this crop because we can make it better. It's still there. And that allowed us to get the foresight past the doldrums of our wet June, July, August mm-hmm. and the no sun. And it, I think that really made the difference with harvest this year and, and the fungicide response is pretty huge across
0: the area. So yeah. the one thing I wanted to add in there. Yeah, certainly, you, you know, I mean, that's one of the key pieces here is you, as you tissue sample, that's a way to calibrate, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about uh, timing of tissue samples and the criticality mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but some of the things that are outside of uh, of the model's awareness is you know the, the disease and actually uh, you know over by Hastings where where I'm at uh, we we picked up a little bit of goss's wilt late season that that had an impact on on yield not we didn't pick it up really early we picked it up after tasseling uh, and so and it wasn't super severe but you know on a couple fields I was in over there it was uh, it was enough that it probably took you know a couple bushels off. Uh-huh. Cool. So, you know, John, uh, timing, and, and you know, I, I look at uh, uh, for Minnesota V five to V eight, zinc and boron were the first tier nutrients, and when, in in Wisconsin, uh, V five to V eight, manganese, zinc, and boron were the were the top ones. So there's some state differences there, but as you flip around to timing, when you look at Minnesota, and you got that, you know, the teenage years of corn, V nine to V fourteen. All of a sudden, it flips from a micronutrient to a macronutrient, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, a little bit. Tell me, walk me through the timings of nutrient uptake and why we sample around those times differently.
1: Yeah. So we got to remember that in order to take in our macronutrients, the bulk of our, you know, the biggest nutrients that are taken in the plant, we have to have a root established and we have to have a factory established or we have to be building that factory. So as we get, like you said, into those teenage years, that's typically when we have root and factory growth and that's where we get the grandest or biggest uptake of those macronutrients. And specifically that would be uh, nitrogen, potassium, and sulfur. Those are probably the big three during the grand growth phase which starts at v8 and about ends at tassel and so that's where those nutrients throw their weight around literally and toss micronutrients out of the mix or care Um, if you don't have those right you're probably going to suffer some kind of yield loss before you address any kind of other micronutrients so typically we like to get the micronutrients out of the way prior to grand growth and that would be you know that v5 to v8 period Zinc and manganese would be the two that we would target there. Um, And then we start that grand growth period. And the reason zinc and manganese are important early is because zinc, I always say is the forklift. I've said this several times and you gotta have as much zinc as you can have in the plant. So when you start taking in your potassium and sulfur, that you can have a place to put it, right? You gotta have the forklifts to move it into the plant. And so that's why we wanna hit those early. And manganese is for photosynthesis. So now as you build that factory and get all those nutrients in, you gotta have photosynthesis going on. So those are the reasons for having the micros, those set of micros first, followed by uh, more concentration on the macros. And then like we talked about, boron and manganese being important at that tassel time frame.
0: Yes, yeah, so I'm just looking across the, the states, you know, Indiana, uh, Iowa, uh, Nebraska, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin—all of those in those teenage years had nitrogen, potassium, and sulfur listed as you know the the, the ones that were most deficient uh, in their in their hierarchy. There's a bit of an outlier here, though. South Dakota actually picked up uh, in that V9 to V10 time frame uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, zinc. Uh, what was going on in, in South Dakota this year that that? we had a phosphorus deficiency during a grand growth period. So,
1: uh, uh, not having a ton of experience with South Dakota, but just relating with them and weather, probably because of cool and wet conditions, a lack of growth, and because phosphorus is the most immobile nutrient um, that we have to deal with, I think maybe that that showed up as, uh, South Dakota had a lot of prevent plant acres, cool, wet soils, uh, early season to mid-season, probably acquired some phosphorus deficiencies because of that would be my first thought around
0: that. So you're saying I was I was right on the first three though, right? Yeah, so you nailed it on the first I was, three. I was one for, or three for four. And that was the most common thing. But I think, you know, as I think about South Dakota, and, and we talk about uh, in a, in a prior, episode, uh, prior episode climate change and how the Corn Belt has shifted almost 100 miles north and uh-huh. uh, about 50 miles west uh, from its center. Uh, over the since since the 1950s, you know, and South Dakota was primed to contribute to this national average that, you know, we kept Mm -hmm. we kept looking at the USDA report going, where is all this corn? And, you know, they're they're predicting a lot in South Dakota, North Dakota, which, you know, are factors in the corn belt, but not always in the same way that the I states have been. So to see that South Dakota came up uh, a little bit cool and wet and to actually see a phosphorus deficiency in a grand growth phase is, is, is a little bit of an interesting, uh, paradigm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so
1: I know that we have our tissue sample results in front of us, but, uh, let's talk about, I, we, I would, I don't feel right if we didn't say, how do we relate these tissue trends to our soil fertility? Because really after we, what are we going to do after we combine the crop that we're in right now? probably should be taking soil test, right? And and there's we, there's only so much that we can do with a tissue sample mm-hmm. if we don't have a good gauge on the soil. And we kind of mentioned it a little bit, but I think now is the time to get out there here this fall or, or right away the spring and assess those soil to take um, fertility and pH. Um, so you're making those right recommendations, and that's going to definitely factor into some of these results you're going to be seeing in the tissue. So, so I do say that. Uh, I mean, I do spend, do spend a lot of time talking about tissue tests and the relationship, but there's a lot of agronomics designed around soil sampling as
0: well. Yeah, and you know, I, I think uh, I always used to joke. You know, GPS allows you to poke the poke the same soil sample hole twice, and uh, you know, of course, you know, if you poke that same one twice, wouldn't it be empty? Uh, that was always my agronomist joke. I'm not sure it went over all that well. I tell it to my kids though. You must be a no-tiller then, or? Right, that's exactly. <laughs> Got uh, it. No-till. Uh, but on, on a prior episode, we actually talked uh, with Jason Weller, uh, mm-hmm. the head of the True Terra uh, Insights Engine, uh, talking about how, grid, how, how doing a geospatial soil sample or a grid soil sample um uh, having soil samples referenced to gps actually contributes to your sustainability score in the true terra tool and and a lot of that is about being able to go back and resample that same area and you know you're sitting in the combine you're wondering maybe i haven't sampled this field for a while or i usually do it in fall i'm kind of tight on the window maybe i should push it to spring what would be your advice right now around you know this tight window between the combine and the tillage implement and trying to squeeze in a few uh, a few soil samples.
1: So, so I think uh, now is an okay time to take soil samples. I mean, if the ground is frozen,
0: that makes it a lot more difficult. Uh, I, I broke a probe last year, by the way. <sighs> I thought I could I thought I could get it in, and I I just I put all two hundred and twenty five pounds on it, and it just buckled like a coke can. Uh,
1: nothing further need to be said on that bowl yeah. in a china shop is kind of what
0: i would exp- i kind of looked around and make sure like none of the neighbors yeah none of the yeah. neighbors saw it and i kind of just put my favorite you, like soil. happy
1: gilmore the probe into the weeds somewhere no 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 it was a
0: sad day i kind of looked at it and carried it back to the shed <laughs> did the proper burial right
1: got it uh so i mean aside from frozen ground and and wrapping up probes uh i think now is a good time to take that that soil sample if you have trend of soil samples taken in the fall, right? So, right. so I mean, uh, there's a trend of, hey, if you're consistently taking soil samples in the fall, we would want to continue that trend of taking them in the fall, and that would be a priority. If we can't get it in, spring samples are just fine too. You just have to maybe, uh, tread a little bit more lightly on the trend that you might make from the rest of your data set. So There's definitely some ways around that, but really uh, the base of a good fertility program is having a soil sample to to make a recommendation. The other base that is uh, sometimes hard to incorporate in the fall, because we want to get out there and make those P and K applications a lot, is yield. So having soil and yield as a component Mm -hmm. really help have a better conversation of what you pulled out of the soil versus what you need to put back. Um, And then that sets you up right for 2020 or or the next year.
0: You know, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, uh, there was a recent uh, USDA report that came out uh, talking about 68% of farmers are yield mapping, uh, but only 34% of those are ever printing a yield map, which puts the number of farmers incorporating uh the yield map into the fertility recommendation below that 34 percent uh you know soil sampling is a great point of reference but really you know yield is is the other point of reference and there you know there's there's academic variability within both of those pieces but talk a little bit about how you've put together fertility recommendations using yield and soil samples
1: so, I think uh, I've worked with several different uh, uh, agronomists on designing their recommendations for this and and uh, and consulting with them and myself on how to do that, and you got to give them a weight, right? And what's that weight? Ah, it depends how consistent you are in taking soil samples and confident you are on the yield that's coming off of that acre. So, it goes back to a yield history conversation, right? Do you know that that's a high producing acre, was it just picked up rented ground, um, and then how many years of soil history do you have on it. So I think you got to assign them a weight. And then once you assign the weight, I guess my preference is if I have a good yield history, I'm probably going to give more weight to yield history than I do for a soil sample. Typically, I like to use a soil sample more of a trend of, hey, have I gone down over the course of four to five years, or have I gone up or stayed the same? And then you adjust your trend of, that's your build factor into what did you remove? Did you have 240 bushel corn or did you have 140 bushel corn? And you can dial that in. The other thing to add there is I like to put be putting fertilizer on for every crop, Joel. So uh, enough of this two-year fertility, because I think it, we experience a lot more waves in our soil sample. Because what we'll have is you'll soil sample every four years, and you've had two years of beans in two years of corn, or just four years of crop in general, and the, your ability to compensate for that for the soil and add it back is a lot more uh, strenuous to execute than is if you were just able to take a removal and say, "Here's where we took the fertilizer. This is where we need to put it back." And I know if Jason was listening, he'd really appreciate that conversation as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a. I think that's a that's a strategy that I've seen growers take on and put it back where you found it. Uh, you know, especially, you know, we keep talking about a normal year. Uh, when I looked at yields across the U.S. Th- this year, it was anywhere from plus 66 bushels to minus 100 bushels mm-hmm. from a, and all the way to zero if it was prevent plant. You know, it's really hard to plan for that in a two-year spread and remember what you did. So I think as you as you go after, you know, building uh, in, in areas that have really low fertility, uh, replacing that that removal— uh, the other place I like to document some of this is right on the soil sample report. I like to just write a little note about what the year was, and mm-hmm. if I took the soil sample under dry conditions or wet conditions, and a little bit about what the yield was. Sometimes that's just a, a quick, easy way to have a little history as I'm looking back over the years of sample consistency.
1: Mm-hmm. The the comment of "Hey, let's just put it back to where we found it." I mean, sometimes that's a little sweet sustainability conversation, right? It's really cute, but I yeah. think what it boils down to for the grower is if you're putting those nutrients back to where you removed it now you're also feeding the acres that produce right you're feeding the mulves the mulves that are going to give you the crop and i think that's that's a sustainable conversation yes but for a pocketbook conversation can you put that potassium or that phosphorus or Nitrogen for whatever it is back to the acres that are going to give you the response. And that's what comboing yield with soil history is going to give you a view at. And if you don't put those two together, you might not see, um, hey, I got low K in this area, but I have my highest yield. Well, let's make sure that we build the heck out of this spot whereas you might have a low k in this area but the lowest yield well maybe don't need to be as aggressive as yield there even though i'm low k just don't get the yield response or you could say is the reason i'm not getting yield because i have low k so there's a lot of questions that you need to answer by putting those two together and if we're not doing that every year with every crop we have the ability to miss a lot of things there
0: yeah so uh, so my question for you here, you know, we've, we've got our, our coffee here. We're only, you know, and it's just us, you know, yeah. us and our viewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been in some combines so this year, will know. nobody will know, uh, share with me. What's the highest, most realistic yield you've seen on a monitor this year, or maybe somebody screenshotted and texted to you. Can I yank the hydrostat? Yeah. You can pull the hydrostat forward. Okay. Careful of the, ca- the cab corn though.
1: Uh, so, so I, I've seen over 300 bushel this year, um, and I've seen under a 100 bushel in the same field. in the same field. Yep, absolutely. So
0: if you had a choice, and
1: that's hold on, I've seen zeros in the same field, but I mean, we know what zeros are. They're drown out spots or no stand. right? So I mean, where I got a stand under a 100 bushel.
0: Okay, so as you think about, you know, we're, we're, this episode is all about nutrient analysis and tissue sampling, you know, if you had to invest in one area of the field, would you invest in the, the zero area? in the 100 bushel area or in the 300 bushel area? Which one of those has the best odds of ROI?
1: Is this a trick question? I don't know, you answer it how you want. Uh, I'd, put, I'd put all my money in 300 bushel.
0: Yeah, I, 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 think, I think a lot of times when we start grid soil sampling, the idea was we, we were gonna make the field uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, there's just something that's, that's right in those areas, from the soil microbiome, which we have yet to completely discover, to you know the soil structure makeup that mm-hmm. it lacks compaction, uh, has good you know has good structure, has good uh, clay silt sand balance in there, soil drainage, uh, right down to you know the ability for that soil to give up its nutrients independent of our ability to measure that in the soil sample so I, I tend to agree with you that you know that's one of the questions maybe you know if you're if you're out there riding in the combine yep. and you see one of those spots uh, I challenge you to kind of look at that spot and work with your agronomist uh, at your retailer to say are we are we missing 20 to 30 bushels off the top end uh, because you know typically in those low ends the, you're, you're limiting factors you know, Probably water, water, and water, in, yep. and in that order. Uh, too and much maybe reverse water, right? Yeah. Too much, too little, or too little. Yeah. And you know, those sometimes you know, I find in a year like this where it was wet, your yield maps are actually inverse, where the tops of the hills are the best yields and the bottoms are the worst yields. Hmm. Uh, so I think you got to have a conversation with your ag professional about you know where can I really stretch? You know, if I if, if resources were scarce and limited, where should I focus? I you're think, saying top end.
1: Yeah, I think you nailed it on and finding the top end spots but i think it's do the does the top end spot have the potential to get bigger right that's by making the whole field even you kind of say oh even steven everybody gets a medal okay go home right that's not the way it works or should work, and, and, and I think, can we make those spots bigger though? Can we make them hunt? and, and So recognizing that 300-bushel 300 300 spot is where we want to feed the crop and be aggressive, but is the reason the 200-bushel spot not a 300-bushel spot? Because we haven't been able to put it there, right? And then we kind of know the 100-bushel spot is like, well, we know what happened there. Yeah. Water, 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 and water. Well,
0: and yeah. I, and I see that you know when it when they look at field averages and, and producers, you know, level up about hey, my field average. You know, I was talking to a guy this morning. He said, yeah, hey, my beans were running sixty-five, seventy bushel field averages. I go, you know, that's a lot more attainable when you've got a couple eighty, ninety bushel spots in the field. Yep. You know, and 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 trying to grow those, it's really hard to get those low spots up and bring your field average up aggressively, especially on on soybeans. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, which is a crop we didn't talk very much about nutritionally <laughs> today. Oddly enough, uh, was there any was there any national results on soybeans uh, or wheat even that uh, that we wanted to announce for for our big reveal here? Yeah, on the like rivers? keep flipping through pages and all. I see is corn. I think we
1: had some national results on soybeans and and I mean I can speak for soybeans. So I mean soybeans because we were starting to get a, a larger data set on soybeans. And the interesting piece that I'll be talking about this winter in a lot of my meetings is now it's not only having the data set, but it's having the tools that allow us to position the tissue samples and put them on a map and see geographical trends. So Mm -hmm. we kind of mentioned this with corn by state, but with soybeans, it's a lot more Like, it's not just by state, it's like, I might have four different regions within just my area of Southern Minnesota that are totally different in the soybean recommendation I'm going to make. So I think the reason we kind of avoided soybeans, because it just gets really complex on where you're at, but realize that... We do have the tools. And, and one example that I'll provide is I always argue with uh, agronomists, and one in particular, I won't say his name, but he's from Nebraska, and his initials are MH. Um, but uh, we always argue about manganese application. He's like, No, I don't need no manganese on soybean. I'm like, You're crazy. Every soybean tissue sample that I see is deficient in manganese. Like, hmm. we're putting manganese on. And guess what? This year was an epiphany for me. I saw the map and where his tissue samples were and where mine were. In in southeastern Minnesota, there was a big red blob when manganese popped up. And Mm. then everybody else was kind of like, well, we kind of need it, but we don't. And Nebraska was blue, meaning they never needed it. So I think as we learn about soybeans and gather more information, those insights are gonna be way more local than what we can even broadly discuss on corn.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's hard to be a national agronomist when it comes to plant nutrition. Uh, you know, wheat in the same way, uh, wheat had some, you you know, some pieces that are pretty typical in here. Uh, certainly, uh, as you look at those deficiencies, uh, magnesium, copper, boron, you know, uh, those are, those are some of the pretty typical things for, for wheat in there. So, uh, I think even that regionally, as you go towards the types of wheat that they're yep. growing, have Changes. more inflection on the macronutrients, on the nitrogen to sulfur ratios, and and really how those plants came out of the ground.
1: Yep, and so then I think, I think getting back into the conversation of... Uh, all agronomics are truly local, and that's having the trusted advisor, the person that you're talking to that knows your farm and field to help you make those recommendations. So, Even on corn, our recommendations today were super broad, um, general. I think going back, whatever crop you're on, corn, wheat, alfalfa, soybeans, um, having the person that can help you make those recommendations and see through the amount of data that, that they have is going to be probably the most beneficial
0: across that acre. So I, I think you know we touched briefly just on uh, on you know what advanced recommendations for, for plant nutrition look like in the future and uh, you know I, I was uh, reviewing one of our crops uh, that's in the Nutri Solutions tools and that was almonds mm-hmm. uh, one of one of your uh, partner agronomists was on with me and uh, one of the interesting things that we were talking about was on almonds there really is no growth staging. You know, because the leaves are on the tree, and you know they, they're they're on there and until they uh, until they they fall off, you know, and senesce that that year. And so it's there's really hard to grow stage by leaves. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that they were talking about is trying to get the metabolic age of that leaf. And they were they were talking about how that metabolic age was going to be determined by the ratio of two particular nutrients. And you know, it was like calcium and boron. It was was kind of the two nutrients that they were focused in on. For that age you know is there is there further work out beyond you know nitrogen to potassium nitrogen and sulfur ratios that we're working on from an advanced recommendation standpoint
1: uh, yeah, so there there is some further work, and it feels like you're trying to pigeonhole me into making a recommendation. <laughs> yeah, job. I wouldn't
0: I wouldn't ask you to do that nationally.
1: Uh, but yes, there is some work on uh, magnesium, zinc, uh, phosphorus, zinc. Uh, I like to think there's other relationships out there, uh, magnesium, sulfur. But sometimes it's like, well, I see it, but can I apply it in other places? So I maybe think there's a relationship, but is there? Um, so there there are some more advanced recommendations to be made, but really I think the the bear of the problem is still getting some of those basics right. Um, and I hope that uh, if we can ever get to a point where we're metabolically talking about where corn is at based on a tissue sample, I think that'll be in a great spot to me making better recommendations than what we could have ever talked about today. So those are some technologies from other crops that we can certainly bring back into into row crops and apply.
0: Awesome, yeah. Yeah, John, uh, as, as we're closing out here, you, you know, it's been a it's been a good discussion around plant nutrition, which is always an exciting topic, especially since you can see so much of the fruits of your labor uh, from the cab here. Uh, do you have anything else from a plant nutrition standpoint that we that that you want listeners to hear about? So I think. Uh, really to to sum
1: up everything we talked about is, is making sure that the crop never has a bad day. And, and, and we kind of mentioned all the different time points that you need to hit, but we, we know that we, all these winter months go into designing a plan. And, and how you design that plan and execute upon it a lot of times indicates what kind of yield levels you're going to have. So what I would challenge from a plant nutrition standpoint is take all the learnings maybe from this episode and things that you've experienced on your farm and take some time this winter to sit down with uh, maybe the person that you make recommendations with or query other people. Maybe they're your neighbors on what they did or maybe they're other agronomists in the area to design a better plan than you had this year to tackle it because that's the amount of planning that you do and how you execute it is definitely gonna pay off in the yield. So I guess that's what, that's what I feel like we have to come to here um, to make that one next step better.
0: So to close that out, you- I, yeah, I, I think I, what I heard you say is if you plan for a good year, you might get one. If you plan for a bad year, you'll definitely get one. So with that, uh, thanks for joining us for a live Deal With Yield podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on your podcast app. Uh, And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.